How many of you are aware of your own need for wisdom? That some of you have a sense that if only you could have insight for the next steps, if you could have understanding of yourself so that you would discover not the person that you've always dreamed of being, but rather the person that God made you to be, wouldn't that be good? The book of Proverbs promises to give wisdom to anyone who looks for it. Listen to these words. This is Proverbs 25, verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. You are silver, this image says. You are a precious material which is just waiting to be crafted into something of beauty and of usefulness in the world. God is the artisan, the smith who is skilled at turning raw material into an object that has purpose, making a lump of silver into a vessel of blessing in the world. Did the preacher just call me a lump? Yes, I did. (laughs) But a lump of silver which needs capable hands to work it into what the artisan sees in his imagination. And God looks at each of you and sees something magnificent to be made. But mixed in with the silver, there will be some dross. Dross are the minerals or the dirt that always is there found in a pure metal which is extracted from the earth. The dross has to be removed for the smith to have workable material. You have some impurities in you which will hinder God's work. Do you see that? Most of us see that when we're honest with ourselves. To be made into the vessel that God wants you to be. And God wants you to be something magnificent even now. The impurities need to be removed, which requires refining. Fire to burn away the dross. This morning and each Sunday all the way through the end of June, you and I together will consider one question each Sunday designed to burn us. Burn us in the sense of removing those parts of our character, our behaviors, our actions, and our attitudes that will keep us from shining in the world as God wants us to shine. And if that's news to you this morning, that God wants you to shine in the world, I'm glad I get to tell you. When God sees each of us, he sees a potential vessel of his own light, of the light of Christ in the world where, I fi- where we find ourselves. And isn't the world where we find ourselves dark? And it needs light, doesn't it? And now here's how we're going to find these questions. They'll come, each one, from the letter that was written by James. It's a small letter in the end of the New Testament. It was written by one of Jesus' earthly brothers, James. The reason this will be our source is because of James' specific situation. James believed in his brother after the the, the resurrection of Christ. And he was with those believers in Jerusalem upon whom the Holy Spirit was poured out and who experienced the incredible growth of the early Christian community in Jerusalem. Does some of you know the stories of the early church? It was magnificent to behold. But then what seemed like only a failure came upon those believers when they were forced to leave the city of Jerusalem and leave the connections that they had with each other right there in the center of the city. They were dispersed all the way out to Antioch, 
and to Phoenicia. They went out to the ends of the earth, losing the community which they once had. But James still had influence with all of those people who are spread out now. And what he knew is that in this disaster, there was a hidden opportunity. Can you see what it is? When all of these believers are spread out into the dark, now each one can bear the light of Jesus where it's more necessary. Do you see it? That is your situation. You are spread out from here, at home, at work, in your neighborhoods, where you spend most of your life. That's an opportunity to shine, but in order to shine, you have to be, you have to be burned. You have to be a bit of silver that is refined. Listen, not by me or by the person who's always picking on you in your life. Do you have one of those people who thinks it's their job to refine you? No, but by the word of God. And so James addressed a letter to those people who were scattered in order to encourage them to put the kinds of questions to themselves which would refine them. And that's what we will do together here this morning and in these coming weeks. Because when we're refined, then we can shine as God wants us to. Here's the first question that we'll consider. Who do I believe in? You may say, I believe in Jesus. That's why I'm here instead of sitting at home on the couch watching TV. Okay, fine. James knew that the people that were gathered in the communities that had been dispersed from Jerusalem also believed in Jesus. But when he looked at them and heard reports of what was happening there, it occurred to him that their behavior reveals that perhaps their belief needs some refining. Do you know that sometimes our behaviors speak of disbelief, even though our mouths say we believe? Do some of you know that? If you're thinking of someone else whose belief betrays disbelief, would I, would I ask you this morning to look at yourself instead? What James did in his letter, among other things, is raise the question for those people based on their behaviors, who do I really believe in? And I want to see that with you this morning so that we ourselves can grow and become mature and be ourselves made more pure and strong in the master's hands. This is James 2 verse 1. Look at the question that James asks. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? James wrote this letter to gatherings of people who would have said, of course we believe. But when they were together with one another in their gatherings, their assemblies, their worship, there was something about the way they carried themselves that pointed to James, in his mind, the fact that perhaps there is some quality of disbelief in the way they behave. And in their case in particular, it was this. Look, uh, it was that he could ask, do you really believe? Because he knew that saying you believe is not the same as actually believing. You know that too? And the behavior that made that plain to James was what he refers to here as acts of favoritism. Uh, Just an aside, if you're following along uh, in your own scripture and you wonder which version I use, I happen to use the NRSV. My teacher in seminary was the editor of the NRSV. It was a class requirement to use that translation. I almost went to him one day at the end of class and asked him to sign my Bible, but I had enough sense not to do that. But it doesn't matter which version you look at. The truth is, we all know from instinct that a person can behave in such a way that it's hard to believe them when they say they believe in Jesus. Don't we know that? Now use your imagination. 
Okay, imagine that we ourselves used to be in the great big church in Jerusalem where there were thousands of people. We couldn't possibly have known everyone. It was so much life and vitality in our gatherings. Then we, we prayed together, we sang together, we shared what we had. God showed up in his spirit. We listened to his word and then the worst happened. We were scattered and now we're off in our own little place where there's only two dozen of us at worship. And we're looking around each Sunday wondering, will God ever bring someone new? And then suddenly there are some new people who show up at church. This is the scenario that James describes. Look at it, verse 2. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Now, that's the picture that James asks them to envision because he's heard reports of this happening. Here we are. There's just a few of us. Two visitors show up. There go the, the, the people who are uh, in charge of greeting and they rush over and this guy's got nice clothing on. He's wearing a gold ring. He's, va he's valuable. He's probably wealthy. He must be connected to people who are important. The murmur goes, that's a rich guy. Come sit up here in the best possible seat. Meanwhile, the other one is dirty and smelly, ragged, poor, no connections. Stand over there. In Greek, sit under my footstool. That's what it says literally in Greek. Can you picture this kind of thing happening in a church? Can you or not? Yeah, as I reflect on it, as I reflected on it this week, I wondered, have I ever done that? I started rushing through my mind. Do I spend more time and attention with people wearing fine tweed jackets? Or, or do I go up to someone who doesn't look like they have a lot? And you know why I did this in my mind? Because I wanted to get myself off the hook. Because I didn't want to be burned by the questions which are raised here. But what I need is exactly the same thing that we all need, which is to allow these questions to burn us a little. And maybe that's not your issue. But here it was the issue in this community that people who seemed wealthy were received with greater respect and dignity than people who didn't seem to have much at all. And thinking this through, James burns them with a second question in verse 4. Look at what he says. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the answer to the question in terms of this behavior is yes. That is exactly what they've become. Behaving like this distributing respect according to perceived financial worth in the church reveals a kind of thinking which is evil. Favoritism like this indicates that it's time to ask yourself the burning question, who do I believe in? Because James is convinced that no one who believes in Jesus could behave like this. They must believe in somebody else not his brother. Maybe they tell themselves they believe in Jesus, but their actions tell of a different Lord. Do you see it? 
Now here it is critical for us not to think of those other people whose behaviors show that they don't believe in Jesus because maybe you go out of your way to welcome the neediest looking person in the room and so you're fine in this regard but whenever there is a behavior that reveals this kind of favoritism, what's required is that we put ourselves to the test asking who do I believe in? What do my actions reveal? There are three perspectives from which James views this behavior, each one designed to reinforce this idea that if you're acting like this, it is not my brother who is your Lord. It is someone else. The first perspective is theological. I want you to look at verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. And by the way, he addresses them as beloved because that's what they are to him. The reason he puts these questions to them is that he loves them. And I want you to know as much as I can, it is my love for you as men and women who, like me, were made in the image of God and have a great calling that puts me up here pushing these questions on you. So you're beloved to me. And and he says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? and to be the heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him. But you, dishonor, have dishonored the poor. This perspective is theological because it begins with God. God, James says, has chosen the poor, but you have chosen the rich. The ones whom God honors, you dishonor. When you treat the poor with contempt and the rich with special favor, you demonstrate that your values are at odds with God's values, as if you're free to determine how to value people based on their economic worth, no matter what God does. And then James is meaning this. Listen, no one who believes in Jesus chooses to replace God's values with his own values. So from a theological vantage point, James wants his readers to ask, when I ignore God's values, am I demonstrating belief in Jesus or someone else? Do you see it? The second vantage point from which James views their behavior is not theological, it's strictly practical. Look at verse 6. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? These three questions become clear with a little historical research. In the Middle East in the first century, Wealthy landowners were notoriously oppressive of those who didn't have means. And everyone James wrote to had to flee their homes in Jerusalem, and so they wouldn't have had much, which means they were subject to the power that those who had money used to manipulate those who didn't have land. And in the courts, rich people purchased justice, and they were generally no friends of people who named the name of Jesus. It's well documented, and yet the believers that James writes to are falling all over themselves to make a good impression on the rich when they show up at their church. They pander all over them. They fawn over themselves when they arrive at their assemblies. And so from a strictly pragmatic viewpoint, their behavior is absurd. And again, according to James, this is evidence that it can't be Jesus that they believe in because Jesus taught plainly that you should be on guard against all kinds of greed because money is a root of all kinds of evil. In this case, 
case, a root of irrational behavior. Does anyone in here know how irrationally money can make people behave who should know better? Yes or no? I see it all the time. And so James is asking them to look at your behavior practically, and can you admit that maybe it's not Jesus who is your God? Maybe it's something else. The third perspective James considers in verses 8 and 9 is scriptural. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, James says. That's verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Jesus taught over and again of the importance of the law of God as the way to live in the world. He, like others in his day, was pressed to sum it all up. And and he said very simply, "It, it all comes down to loving God and to loving your neighbor as yourself. And this law, the law of loving those around you just as you would want to be loved as you love yourself, is royal because it is the law of the true king. And do you know who the true king is? James knew the true king was his brother, Jesus. And anyone who lives together in a community of faith and yet feels free to disregard the law of the true king has to ask the practical question, with my actions, who do I believe in? And again, James wanted the people gathered there to ask this question first so that they could fulfill the mission that God had for them, which was to shine in the world. And then secondly, because, and this is equally true for every one of you as it is for the folks that James wrote to back then, there is nothing better than believing in the one and only true Lord. I want to pause on James for a moment. Set him aside for a minute. And I want to lift into view for all of us the principle which is beneath what James writes. This is the biblical vision for the nature of what faith is. And that word is all over the Bible. It's immensely important. In the history of religions, there are no other religions which so prioritize faith or belief. And so what's going on for James here, like a foundation under his teaching, is this idea. Behavior reveals belief. And each of us now are on the verge of an opportunity to let this fact teach us how to grow. In fact, let me put it this way, to let this fact refine us so that some of the dross is burned away. What you say you believe is one thing, but how you behave is something different. You know this adage, right? Actions speak louder than words, right? James would be here and he would say, let me change that. Actions speak instead of words. Because it just doesn't matter what you say you believe. What matters is what your actions reveal about what you believe. And listen now, before we go further, because I want to teach you about the biblical vision of belief, I want to warn you against something. Your behavior does not matter because only when you behave right, then God loves you. James could never teach that because in his own lifetime, he rejected Jesus. Do you know that? And more on James later on. 
but he knows that you don't get God's love and deliverance and rescue because you behave right. It's only because of God's grace. It's only because of the grace of my brother, Jesus would say, that every one of you has nothing to worry about when it comes to being justified before God. My brother loves you more than you could ever have dreamed. He died for you. He gave his entire life because you are that precious to him. And in this moment, don't you dare worry at all about what his disposition toward you is. It's love through and through. But now it's time for you to wake up and believe in my brother. And stop just saying what you think, but believe. So what is believe, biblically? I want to make this very clear. First of all, in the Bible, belief is always a relationship word. Always a relationship between two active and living subjects. In all of the Hebrew scriptures, not one single time is the object of belief ever a fact. Okay, think about that for a moment. No one ever says in the Bible, I believe in an ideology, or I believe in a religious viewpoint, or I believe in a doctrine. Those things, those propositions are immensely important for the articulation and understanding of our faith, and we apply our minds to thinking about them, but they never become the objects of our belief because belief in the worldview of of the Hebrew Scriptures and, and of the New Testament is always a relational concept. You believe in a living being. In, in the case of God, you believe in the transcendent God who, though he is transcendent, has decided to condescend so that we can have a genuine, living, real relationship with him. And then we can say, I believe in God, which is almost the same thing as saying, I choose to trust God. Do you see the difference? That's the first thing. To believe in God, to believe in Jesus is to choose to trust. Think of that carefully. If it's not hard to do, it's not trust. Do you see that? It happens often for me. People say, I'm trying to trust God. It's so hard. I wish it were easy. If it were easy, it wouldn't be trust. Trust is a choice to put yourselves into the hands of another who you have to decide is trustworthy, even though you may not have the evidence to prove it. That's the first thing about belief. Here's the second thing about belief. In the Bible, belief is total and not partial. Now stay with me here. This is how Isaiah describes the complete and total character of what genuine faith is. This is Isaiah 7, 9. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Either you believe or you don't believe. Either, and remember, belief is not about your ideas, but about your entrusting yourself. Either you trust God totally or not at all. Belief is choosing to trust like a full surrender in which I give myself to the other with reckless abandon. It's like the ground that I stand upon. It's an all-in phenomenon. That's the second one. Now, with that in mind, does it make you feel that perhaps you've never really believed since you kind of waver back and forth between total trust and not? Anyone else feel like that? Yeah, I'm sure you do. And you always will. Because this is the third thing about biblical belief, and this is critical. Belief in the Bible is not once and then never again, but it is over and over and over again. Every new season of life requires the decision to choose belief again. 
I can see some of you nodding. Do you know what this means? Every day in some seasons of our lives includes the choice to believe in the sense of trusting God yet again. Isn't that so? Some of you will have to make that choice more than once on this very day. Isn't that the truth? And that's what belief is like in James's mind because that's what it is to believe in God and to believe in Jesus. With this conception of belief in our minds, now we are ready to do some work on ourselves. And, and here I want to urge upon you the discipline of putting other people out of your minds and letting yourself be there so that you can put the burning question which James wants you to put to yourself to you. Who do I believe in? And then with this conception of faith that behavior reveals belief, you can begin to get an answer by focusing on how you tend to behave. Can we be honest for a few minutes? Yes or no? You are hypocritical sometimes. Your insecurity makes you insincere now and then. Sometimes you're dishonest with people whose opinion you value so that you appear more impressive. You can sometimes be duplicitous. You hold others to higher standards than you expect to be held to yourself. Isn't that true? Sometimes you're really unfair in your criticism and occasionally downright judgmental. When you're stressed, you become aggressive in a way that's embarrassing to you and the people around you. If this list doesn't feel like you, then you're nothing like me because I wrote this list on Wednesday when I was thinking about how this question addresses me. Are some of you a little bit like me? And if none of these are you, then... I'm urging this on you. Just let your own behaviors emerge. The ones that you're pretty sure don't yet fit with belief in our Lord Jesus. As James names him, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What do your behaviors reveal about who you believe in? That's the question. If you are kind only to those people who can help you back, you rush over to the rich person and disregard the poor person, then you believe in yourself that you're the most important person in the world. And there are a lot of people whose God is themselves. If you never rest and never stop working, even though you have more than enough, perhaps you believe in the God of money that he can save you. If you're self-conscious, obsessed with your physical appearance, then perhaps it's your own particular version of physical beauty that is your God. And that God is making a lot of money these days around us, right? If you're always trying to accomplish more than you did before so that you can feel valuable, perhaps success is the God that you believe in. Uh, this is just an indication of what it might be. What is it for you? You need to put this question to yourself so that you can become the kind of material that the artisan can work with so that you're crafted into a vessel and the world needs you to ask this question too because the world needs the light that you bear into it as you let the hands of God make you and as you let these kinds of questions burn you a little bit. 
If you spend time with these questions and then you're willing and able to see that, you know, if, if, if I'm honest, you know, maybe it is a little bit of me uh, that I'm believing in. And maybe it is a little bit of success that I'm believing in. And maybe I've, I've let God be, uh, become money for me. And, and maybe it's, it's my own uh, accomplishments or whatever it is. If you would do that for a moment. Now, imagine James coming up here. And James says to you, listen, don't be too hard on yourself. Everybody does it all the time. But I want to give you an invitation. Stop believing in all of those false gods. And would you believe in my brother Jesus, please? Because he is the true God of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of lords. He is the good shepherd who came to rescue you as his beloved sheep. Enough of all those false gods of putting your heart in all of those places that will never fulfill your promises, James says. Come and believe in in Jesus and not have new ideas about him, but throw yourself into his arms completely. Not say that you know this or that about him. Leave that for later on. You can grow in your understanding later. Give your heart to this one who is the lover of your soul through and through. Believe in him. Trust yourself into his hands. He is completely capable in a way that no one else is. You are not, no one else ever could be. And trust him totally. Be reckless in your decision to trust him. You know what it's like to want to feel what the water feels like and just kind of touch your toe? James would say, no, go in there right now, jump in. In 2000, I, I had a, a summer where I, I stayed in Switzerland. I was a student in, the, in Bern. Has anyone here ever been to Bern, Switzerland? It is a magnificent old city, isn't it? It's surrounded by a glacial river that comes from the mountains. It's ice cold, bright blue, and foamy where it roars underneath the bridge that goes out of the city. In August, I was so hot, I walked down to the bridge to see if I could climb the banks down to touch that ice cold water, and they were too steep. And then there were four young men who came up to stand beside me, also drawn to the river by the the promise of relief from the blistering summer heat. They took off their shoes and their shirts and they climbed the rail and jumped right in. And the water just swallowed them up, carried them underneath. I looked over the other side and they were whisked away. When they finally bobbed up, their eyes were filled with joy and relief. It was so beautiful. Jump into belief like that. Don't try to get your toes wet. Throw yourself completely into the river of the love of God in Christ. Abandon yourself to him. Trust him. Believe in him in that way. You cannot just dip your toe in with faith. It's everything. Go ahead. Throw yourself in. You will never, ever regret the decision to trust Jesus. And if If you hear me saying that and you think I mean because it's going to be so comfortable and easy, no, that is not what I mean. There's a reason why I chose a very dangerous river as an illustration. You might get swirled underneath and swallow a lot of water. Following Jesus is risky and it's hard. It is. That's what refining is like. And to be a man or a woman of adventure, to dive in is what the world is waiting for. If you will then I can assure you 
your, your behaviors will change. For one thing, you will no longer discriminate based on perceived economic value. That will be a distant memory. And you will find the unique delight of befriending people who have hardly anything. And you'll be astounded at the faith that God has given them. That's for one. What else will come? I want to show you that if you will believe the behaviors which follow are discreet and observable, for one thing, you will become a person of goodness. And I've just selected some that seem to me to be clear of what it is to be a believer in Jesus. You know what it's like when someone is a good person. It's a broad term, right? But you can tell the difference between someone who's a good apple and a stinker, can't you? (laughs) People who genuinely believe in Jesus are good people. I'm not telling you that when you're good enough, Jesus accepts you. That is so immature. Who actually believes that? Nobody. But when you believe in Jesus, you become good. You are a person who's on the lookout to do what is right. Here's how Paul put it in Galatians 6.10. Whenever you have an opportunity, work for the good of all, and especially those of the family of faith. People that you are connected to in the community of faith are your first opportunity to be good. And so be good to each other. And don't let it stop there. Be good to all, Paul says. Second characteristic of the one believing in Jesus is like a version of goodness, but I lift it because our time is desperate for it. Kindness. Listen now. I cannot overemphasize how clearly kindness in a person reveals a heart that is trusting in Jesus. And conversely, how it is when a person is mean that it's a clear sign their heart is very far away from Jesus. Because a person who is close to him is kind. The believer is kind to everyone. These are the words of Jesus. Look, Luke 6, 36. God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, Jesus taught. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. That means when you believe in him, you are kind. Here's a third one. This one was written by Peter who knew exactly what it was to believe in Jesus and then to let his pride get in the way of reality so that he had a very big fall. He learned what we need to learn, which is humility is a third character trait of a person who's believing in Jesus. Here's what he said. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. That's 1 Peter 5, 6. And you don't need to be afraid of being humiliated because God would never humiliate you. He loves you too much. But for you to be humble, humble enough to say, I don't know. I'm trying my best. I haven't figured it all out. I think I'm right, but I can see that you think you're right, and I don't always have to be right. That's a mark of someone who's following Jesus, humility. And then the fourth one, which I selected, and by the way, there are many more than four, is this one. It is trust. The person who is believing in Jesus in the biblical sense is someone who's trusting him. Someone who has stood and decides to stand on this determination that no matter what happens, If the mountains fall into the sea and the whole earth should change, I still will choose to trust because I've determined to believe that he is trustworthy. And I know that you can do that even in the darkest of days when it doesn't feel like he's anywhere around because trust is the decision of one who is believing in Jesus. Isaiah 26.4 puts it like this. Trust in the Lord forever. And here is the truth. For in the Lord God, you have an everlasting rock. 
Now, this is me wanting to be your pastor. Listen, stand on that rock and ask of yourself, who do I believe in? And ask it honestly so that through your question, God can burn away the dross so that you become the material that the smith can work with. And when I look out at you, I see I see so many vessels of light for this world which is dark. And when you burn for others, your own heart will receive the love and light of Christ in an unparalleled way. And so that is my invitation. Ask the question, who do I believe in? Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you for your servant, James, who out of his own belief ventured to put questions to those who would also believe in you that would refine them. And this morning we put ourselves under your word and ask that through it and through the power of your spirit, which surely is here as we've gathered, through it you would burn away those things in us which need to be removed so that we ourselves could become material that is in your hands, pliable material with integrity so that you can make of us the vessels that you mean for us to be. God, we lift these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our friend and our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.